This is a Young Farmers Podcast. I'm Lindsay Lusher Shute. After years of spraying, Dwayne Johnson, a groundskeeper, believes the herbicide Roundup, which contains glyphosate, caused him to develop non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, a rare and very painful form of skin cancer. So he filed a case against Monsanto, the manufacturer of Roundup. Four years later, a jury awarded Mr. Johnson $289 million in damages. Many, many farmers use Roundup, and the question of how dangerous it may be has been studied. The EPA found it to be safe. Yet the World Health Organization's International Agency for Research on Cancer found it to be, quote, probably carcinogenic in humans. So mixed results. Monsanto, for its part, maintains that Roundup is safe, but faces over 9,000 similar cases across the country. This week, an Oakland, California judge said that another case will go forward next March. Today, I'm speaking with one of Mr. Johnson's lawyers, Mark Burton. Mark tells us about the case and how they managed to win it. Hi, I'm Lydia Nebel, farmer at Second Wind CSA in Gardner, New York. I've been a member of the National Young Farmers Coalition for the last two years because I like taking direct action to address exploitation within our food systems, Plus, I love the network of folks I get to learn alongside. For $35 a year, you can join too. In addition to being part of a bright and just future for agriculture in the United States, you'll also get discounts like 10% off high mowing organic seeds and 30% off of redback boots. So it pays for itself. To join, you can go to youngfarmers.org. Just to uh, get going here, uh, Mark, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'm Mark Burton. Um, I'm of counsel at Datton Partners in San Francisco. Um, we specialize in complex litigation, uh, things like class actions, and what we refer to as mass torts. So that's usually a lot of pharmaceutical and medical device types of litigation. How did Mr. Johnson find uh, the Miller firm? How, how did they come to, to know one another? It was just via the internet. If you followed the trial very closely, there was this whole interaction that he had with Monsanto where he was calling Monsanto directly and asking whether or not there was any link between Roundup and cancer because he had been using Roundup extensively for several years and he had been diagnosed with this horrible cancer. He was curious if there was any link, so he was calling the company and being told this one of the Monsanto positions basically would call him back, and they never did. And then he started seeking legal support? Right. After uh, several attempts to contact Monsanto, and then uh, he had some discussions with his oncologist uh, who was treating him. And at the time, one of his physicians wrote to his employer saying, he shouldn't be spraying Roundup any longer as part of his job. But, you know, he's in treatment for this horrible NHL cancer. You know, there's it's kind of a rarer form of NHL. It's still non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's called mycoses fungoides. So, uh, really horrible sort of uh, situation for someone because. Literally, these tumors erupt all over the body through the skin. So, very painful. 
And the, so the, he contacted the Miller firm, and then what happened next? Well, the Miller firm brought my firm in to assist in Cal- all their California cases, basically, and then the Johnson case specifically. We had three law firms working out of my firm in San Francisco that all contributed attorneys. There was about a dozen attorneys that we had working on the case through the trial. So why did you decide to take this case? Uh, I just think it's an incredibly compelling case. I mean, we've all heard so much about glyphosate, just, just how extensive the use of it is now in, in farming and other activities, not only around the country, but around the world. And you're hearing more and more about the levels of glyphosate that just you pull a random person off the street and you can detect glyphosate in their urine or their blood, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it's a huge concern and, and one that Monsanto just has a horrible history of being involved in manufacturing and promoting extremely toxic chemicals. Um and then just wholly escaping any responsibility for the damage that they've done, uh, you know, all the way going back to Agent Orange. I actually have a ranch myself and live in an area outside of San Francisco that has always been kind of a leader in organic farm practices. Uh, I just think it's a really interesting, you know, area of kind of where the law interacts with society on a really broad basis, you know. I guess there are more now, but at the at the time when Mr. Johnson's case um, was brought, there were four thousand or thereabouts cases pending. But his case was accelerated because of his illness. How how were you able to get Mr. Johnson's case at the front of the line, given the thousands that were already in the queue? Yeah, well, unfortunately, uh, among those thousands of cases, it's, it's often the case that either somebody's already passed away and will be representing the heirs, so there's not such urgency on the case, or it's somebody that had NHL and they're either uh, in full remission or partial remission now, so they're not currently, you know, dying. And NHL is it's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, correct? Right, on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But in, in Mr. Johnson's case, you know, he had this uh, particularly aggressive form of NHL and had a high risk of, of dying soon. Now, you know, the treatments he's been getting in the last year uh, really helped uh, extend his life expectancy, but he still has, you know, the physicians generally say probably two years at the outside maximum. Mm. And so that that is why the the judge chose this this case to to move ahead. In California, in the state courts, we have a unique procedure there where you can make this motion uh, because somebody is uh, you know likely to die uh, fairly soon and kind of move expedite their case for trial. Uh, in some states, the family can still recover for your pain and suffering that you suffered while you were alive, but in California, you can't do that. So that's one of the reasons they have this procedure to try to expedite the case uh, so you can uh, uh, you know, try to get to a, a jury decision before you die. 
And what was your process of preparing for the trial? Oh, wow. Um, well, that's an interesting uh, thing to try to think of because, you know, this isn't like a single plaintiff who, you know, was involved in a motor vehicle accident where you're going out and meeting with or deposing the doctors who treated just that plaintiff. And like you said, there's thousands of cases involved. So a lot of the preparation of the case has been done not specific for the Johnson case, but for all of the cases. All the corporate witnesses of Monsanto that were deposed, they were deposed in depositions that weren't specific to Johnson at all. And you have access you have access to that information. I mean, is that publicly available or because you're working in tandem with other with this with the other firm, you were able to access those depositions? So that's still an ongoing process of getting documents. They're designating them confidential. We're getting them de designated and then, you know, using them in the in the litigation. And you know, a lot of the preparation overall for the Johnson case occurred in the context of all the cases. Uh, even though, you know, obviously there was case-specific work uh, with some of the experts, particularly our uh, oncologist expert that testified about the Roundup specifically causing Mr. Johnson's NHL. Uh, one of the big preparations these days, to tell you the truth, is we have technical people that help us try cases now where, you know, all these depositions that were taken, the judge is making rulings all the way up to the start of trial or even after the trial starts about which evidence can be admitted and which parts of those depositions can be admitted during the trial. So we're uh, recutting those videos uh, on an ongoing basis to use at trial. And the videos are of the depositions? Right. I see. So some so some from the, this national team of lawyers working together to compile this evidence um, on these cases, that data is then, was actually directly brought into the Johnson trial. Exactly. And what, so what were the um, claims that were made here? Like what, what um, did, did your team, like how did you, how did you bring this case on, on what grounds? Kind of the legal causes of action, so to speak, um, they primarily fall into two legal theories, and one of those is failure to warn. In California, we have a difference between what we call negligent failure to warn and strict liability failure to warn, but it's all on that same basic concept of that they didn't warn, you know, that the product could cause some specific harm. Here, obviously, we're talking about cancer with, with Roundup. In addition to that, we have a, a unique claim in California. It's what we call the consumer expectation test. The, the legal question technically is, did the product perform as safely as an ordinary consumer would expect it to? Um, in this case, you know, the, the theory on the consumer expectation is just that, you know, people were very much led to believe that this was only harm, harmful to uh, plants and that it was totally safe for humans and animals, that there was no problem, no safety issue using it, which the company still maintains. And But proving the link between the product and, and cancer was the key to showing that it doesn't perform as safely as the consumers who are using it expected to. And how did you, how did you look to prove that? Like, how did you, how did you build, build the, that case? 
Well, I mean, it, it's really just the science, you know, discussions about all the different areas of research between not just glyphosate, but Roundup itself as well, and the link to cancer. So who are some of the experts that testified on your side, and who are the experts that testified for Monsanto as, as the defendant? Sure. We had a great panel of experts that testified on the plaintiff side, on the Fusas' behalf. But the first expert that we had was Dr. Portier, and he headed up one of the United States uh, environmental assessment. I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the agency specifically that he headed for some 25 years or something like that. Anyway, he's, he's a biostatistician who has a lot of expertise in toxicology. And, and uh, I don't know how familiar you are with IARC, but that was a big theme during the trial was the international agency that conducts research on cancer. You know, they determined glyphosate was a probable carcinogen in 2015. And he was actually the consultant that the panel who was deciding that matter for IR, Dr. Poirier had never had any involvement in litigation uh, prior to this case, uh, but after the IR report came out, he uh, you know, was approached about becoming an expert in, in cases, and he was willing to do that here. Uh, of course, he was being attacked pretty viciously by Monsanto. Uh, obviously, it was a controversial figure to them uh, as they disagreed with the entire RR panel. I, I'm just trying trying to think about how, how this all plays out, right? Because you have Dr. Portier uh, testifying based on the World Health Organization's uh, findings through the International Agency for Research on Cancer. And then I'm, I'm sure Monsanto had its own experts. And, you know, there's hundreds of studies that have found that glyphosate does not cause cancer and the Environmental Protection Agency made the same conclusion in 2017 after a decades-long study. So there, there is a lot of conflicting evidence here. And then there are both experts on either side, I'm sure, talking about whether glyphosate is cancerous or not. They are speaking to a jury and I'm assuming that jury is not made up of scientists, right? I actually don't know well, who was on the I mean, jury. That was, that was actually the amazing thing. We actually had scientists on this jury. We had a, a oh. biologist with a PhD who works in drug research on the jury. And we actually saw that as a big advantage. You know, I think Monsanto would try to say that we're trying to try these cases to juries that don't know anything about science and pulling the wool over their eyes. But when we were picking this jury, we wanted really smart, educated jurors. I don't think anyone had less than, you know, some impressive undergraduate degree. We thought that was good because we really had a great scientific story to tell because, you know, there's a difference, uh, a, a big scientific difference when a study is conducted and it, it either shows a link between, you know, a substance and cancer, or a study, for instance, an epidemiological study may not show a link between a substance and cancer. But uh, an epidemiological study, for instance, that doesn't show a link doesn't necessarily mean that there is no link between the substance and cancer. It's often misunderstood in the public sphere when they say, oh, well, 
you know, this, uh, this study showed that there is no link. That's not scientifically how they talk about those studies typically because, you know, the, the studies, especially in epidemiology, are extremely hard to do. You might, you know, not find a link in a particular study, but that doesn't necessarily prove that the substance doesn't cause cancer. And, in fact, Monsanto, when uh, prior to the publication of any of the results from uh, the farm study came out, they had already attacked that study, saying any result would not be useful. And, you know, that was, of course, because if there was a link shown, they wanted to be able to discredit it. Uh, so they were heavily critical of the study and, and how it was designed and conducted until some results that they thought were favorable for them started coming out, and then they said, oh, it's great. <laughs> they were critical of the EPA study before it was released. Right, exactly. So um, that hurt them trying to rely on the study at trial when they had already been so critical of it before any results came out. So and just to give you a, you know one thing that the average person might not think of regarding these studies, if, if you already had cancer, for instance, NHL specifically, and you were uh, one of these farmers or applicators that use pesticides and herbicides, well then, when the study started and they're collecting that information, you were excluded from the study. So if you start a study with a whole bunch of people who have years of use of chemicals such as Roundup, and you exclude the people that have already gotten sick, you've kind of biased what your potential finding can be. Like, Why do you think ultimately the jury sided um, with the World Health Organization's finding as opposed to EPA and, and these other studies? What do you think made them side um, with Mr. Johnston? If you actually have to sit there for weeks and listening to the world's top experts basically explain the science, it's almost a no-lose situation. It's extremely difficult to not make the link once you start hearing about the entire picture of the science. So, for instance, Monsanto tries to basically rely on um, that there's not enough epidemiological studies to show the link between Roundup or glyphosate and cancer. Of course, there there is evidence in uh, various studies showing a link between glyphosate-based herbicides like Roundup and cancer, but it could be stronger. Epidemiology studies are very hard to conduct. For instance, the tobacco companies fought epidemiology for years and years trying to say that the epidemiology studies that were showing a link um, between smoking and cancer uh, were invalid and didn't show a true link and of course, it just took decades and decades of additional scientific research and documentation to make those final conclusions regarding smoking. So it, it's really the same battle that we're in right now as the battle that occurred in tobacco, where the tobacco companies were saying it wasn't enough epidemiology um, to prove the link. And the real problem for Monsanto uh, is that, you know, they they basically try to take a position that there's just absolutely no evidence linking glyphosate or Roundup to cancer. And that's just so untrue. (laughs) 
when mm. when Monsanto comes in with that position and tries to say that there's no evidence, and then you start presenting these studies and the evidence and the you know these top experts, it really undermines their credibility. In other words, if the scientific community is so in agreement that there is just absolutely no link between glyphosate or Roundup and cancer, then Monsanto should be able to line up a lot of scientists that would come to trial and say that. But it turns out that they were not able to get anyone involved in any of this research to actually testify at the trial. Uh, in other words, they took experts who had, didn't have backgrounds in glyphosate or herbicide research. But for instance, their epidemiologist, Dr. Mucci, uh, she didn't have a background in this area. And so you know, when you asked her about her opinions, she had a very limited breadth and background in the subject. And so that became very clear at trial, that she was hired to testify at a trial and that she was basically educated for her opinion by Monsanto uh, to give her opinion in the case. Whereas the plaintiff's experts uh, were pretty universally deeply involved in this specific area of research for years and years and years going back. Um, I mean, our... our epidemiologist was the one who had uh, conducted research going all the way back to Agent Orange in Vietnam, for instance. So in this case, you had your team had to prove that um, glyphosate is carcinogenic and had something to do with Mr. Johnson's cancer. But you also had to prove that Monsanto knew this and didn't warn consumers so how, how is that correct? So, and how did you prove the 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 second part of it that Monsanto knowing? I mean, knowingly really, did this? it's important for the punitive damage aspect of the case to show that they knew, um, or at least had suspicions. And the most important, probably part of that story, kind of uh, I'd refer to it as the Dr. Perry story. So Dr. Perry is is deceased now, uh, but he was basically one of the world's undisputed top toxicologists. So in the 90s, um, when there was some studies coming out that were starting to show links between glyphosate and cancer, um, and specifically Roundup, uh, Monsanto was obviously very concerned about this, and you know they're kind of constantly uh, trying to arm up their scientific side in order to battle you know any regulations that a regulatory agency might be trying to put on them or anything like that. So basically what happened was because Dr. Perry was so uh, well regarded, they hired him as a consultant and basically said, you know, we want to know what your thoughts about this because they were hoping to develop him into, um, you know, a friend of the company. And basically Dr. Perry wrote a report that said, actually there's, evidence that it it is toxic. (laughs) And um, he recommended a series of studies that Monsanto should conduct. And how was it known that he he said it is toxic? Did he write about that internally to Monsanto or was that... Right. He 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 wrote a report 
to Monsanto as a consultant that gave his opinion um, that, you know, there was evidence of toxicity and saying that these specific studies needed to be conducted not just on glyphosate, but they really needed to start conducting because it's really something that they, they don't do and they're not required by regulatory agencies to do this. They don't conduct studies on the actual formulation of Roundup itself. You know, during discovery, that report was found that Dr. Perry wrote to them. And, um, you know, Monsanto tries to argue this, but we believe it's very clear under the rules, for instance, of the EPA that, you know, when they receive information about a chemical that they're manufacturing, such as Dr. Perry's report, that's something they're supposed to turn over to the EPA. And, of course, that report was not turned over to the EPA. They buried it internally. As a matter of fact, not only did they bury it internally, but, for instance, uh, you know, one of Monsanto's head researchers, uh, when they were discussing it internally via email, um, basically said, we're never going to do these studies that Perry's recommending. Um, so that was a very potent document. And so the difference was whether glyphosate itself is carcinogenic or the whole formulation. And his concern was that the formulation was carcinogenic. Or did he think both had some impact, but but both things needed to be tested? In these ways, right? I mean, he definitely had concerns about glyphosate alone, but he was basically saying, you know, well, there's already concern regarding glyphosate. But I mean, just to give you an example, you know, the surfactants, which are uh, can be the majority of the Roundup mix, the concentration, you know, where glyphosate might be 41 percent of the the concentrate, and then the surfactants might concentrate to most of the rest of, of what's actually contained in Roundup. And those are, you know, what allow the glyphosate to stick to and penetrate into the cells of the plant itself to, so it can work. Well, um, it's the same thing with the human skin. In other words, that surfactant helps spread the glyphosate on skin and helps to penetrate into the cells in your body. So the the jury found, um, what was their finding? I mean, obviously they found for us on um, all the causes of action, you know, the, that we were discussing, the negligent failure to warn, the strict failure to warn, and the consumer expectation design defect, we call it, and then the, the punitive finding as well, that, that, you know, basically they had acted with malice or oppression, and we call it a conscious disregard for the safety of others. And they were unanimous on all all of those decisions, which is pretty incredible. And um, and then they, you know, um, awarded damages for Mr. Johnson's specific compensation, and then the separate uh, punitive damage award. And what was the what was the total um, of of damages awarded? So it was about thirty nine million for um, Mr. Johnson in total between his economic losses, what we call non-economic losses, and then um, 250 million in punitive damages. So, um, of course, if you've been following the headlines, the, the judge in the case reduced the punitive damages uh, basically to a ratio of one to one to the compensatory damages. So she cut the uh, 
punitive damages from $250 million to approximately $39 million. Could you just explain this to me? So the, the jury made its decision, and then she was reviewing it on appeal, and she couldn't find that the that the company did this knowingly. Is that right? Like, she just disagreed with the jury, but let some of it, their uh, decisions stay? Like, what exactly, how, do, how does that work? Sure. I mean, it's not technically an appeal. It's basically just saying to the trial judge that the evidence presented didn't support the jury's findings. And at the end of the day, she never said that she disagreed with the jury. Um, and, you know, she found that there was sufficient evidence on both, you know, the causes of action and punitive damages to support the jury's verdict finding. She basically said that the punitive damages amount exceeded the constitutionally permissible limit uh, of what a jury should be able to award in such a case. Could you could you explain punitive damages in this case? It's it's beyond damages just for Mr. Johnson, is that correct? I mean, it's for Mr. Johnson, it's for what they did to Mr. Johnson and to deter them from similar conduct in the future is what they're supposed to be for. Deter Monsanto from doing this again. That's the idea. <laughs> of course, um, you know, one of our points is obviously it must not be um, a high enough punitive damage award since they're they're still denying the link between Roundup and cancer, and they're not warning still, right? <laughs> mm. And and some of the jurors, when they heard this tentative ruling, is I they were somewhat proactive too, saying that don't overrule what we've decided um, in this in this case. Yeah, like I said, you know, this was a very highly educated jury when they heard that there was a tentative ruling that potentially was going to throw out, uh, you know, significant finding that they had made. And they're upset, obviously. And I mean, those aren't really things that a judge is allowed to consider. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, they, they certainly uh, expressed their own frustration and, uh, and, and wrote her, uh, a couple of them did write her letters. So what's next for this case? Um the damages have been reduced. I, has Monsanto written a check yet? Yeah, right. <laughs> no, no, that uh, that certainly doesn't happen yet. Um, you know, we're pretty sure that they'll file an appeal and they'll have to post a, a bond for the amount of the judgment or, the re- you know, the reduced amount that the judge uh, reduced the verdict to anyway. I'm 99.9% sure we'll be up on appeal uh, trying to defend the jury's decision. And then what about the, the remainder of uh, the cases? These these cases are not just being brought in California. They're being brought all across the country. And now there are twice as many since since the Johnson right. trial. Yeah. Um, what's, what, what do you foresee um, moving forward? It seems like there's likely some momentum that will continue to build here. Yeah, well, um, trials in Missouri State Court should start in February next year. And there, we're actually going back to the federal court on Monday to discuss uh, which case will be tried this probably this winter, or probably around February. There's, there's probably going to be several trials conducted, you know, late uh, winter, early spring uh, next year. And I guess the assumption that is at some point Monsanto 
will stop fighting these cases and settle. But right now they're they're fighting every every single one of them. But I guess to to settle cases, new cases would be some admission of that that this is true that there is that there is this linkage. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That it's uh, admission necessarily when you settle cases. It's specifically not supposed to be, but um, they're certainly you know have a litigation stance that they're going to uh, fight these tooth and nail as long as they can. Do you have any sort of predictions as to like how how this is going to play out? These thousands of cases against this company on this specific issue. Yeah, well, obviously the Johnson case will be the first facing an appeal, and if if the case is upheld on appeal, uh, that's a significant blow to them. Um, and then in the both the federal courts and at least in Missouri, if if the cases even reach trial in February, that the judges don't throw the cases out on motions to dismiss, you know, that's going to be a big blow to them as well. So, uh, you know, a lot of cases, whether or not it's been tobacco or fen-fen or other types of cases like this, a lot of times a handful of cases have to be tried and won before the company relents. Usually they uh, can kind of uh, try to achieve some sort of lower settlement the earlier they settle, but at the same time, uh, they have to be convinced to settle. And, and, of course, because you're getting more publicity and more people have tried cases and there's been more success out there, by the time they finally settle the cases, a lot of times it costs them a lot more money. How long do you expect this case is, is going to go on, on appeal? Like, when 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 does it end? You know, that's a great question. On the, the early side, I'd say 12 to 18 months. And on the far side, it could be a decade. Thanks, Mark, for taking time to explain this complicated case. Thanks to the two people who wrote us reviews this week. Oh, man, we were so happy to get these reviews. We got one from Farm and Carmen in Florida and from Full Femme in Texas. We so appreciate it. We're glad that you both are enjoying the podcast. If you're listening and haven't written us a review yet, please take two minutes. Tell us what you like, what you'd like us to do better. We're open to it all and are excited to read your feedback. We are going to be, of course, linking to a bunch of uh, articles today in the show notes and on our Instagram at Young Farmers Podcast. We would love to hear any thoughts you have about this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. This episode, as always, was recorded at Radio Kingston and it was edited by Hannah Beal. Talk to you next week.